Welcome to the Running in the Center of the Universe podcast. I'm Ashlyn Dave, your host. We've got a great show lined up, so let's get started. And this is Ashlyn Dave, and this is the Running in the Center of the Universe podcast, episode number 296. It's the week of Veterans Day 2023. I'd like to thank you for coming along, downloading the show, and especially if you are a repeat listener. I uh, appreciate you coming back and listening to the podcast again. Um, it's kind of the uh, probably the cheapest um, bi-monthly podcast that you can get, uh, being that it's free and uh, pretty much cheap all around. I think I'm going to work on my intro. I couldn't find the more uh, modern one that I have. Um, I can you probably, if you've listened to the show before, you've heard me talk about my computer, and um, it, there's just uh, I think we got two external hard drives hooked into it now. I just there's just so much, um, so many places to look for it. Uh, I don't think I've deleted it. I don't really ever delete anything, but I think I'm going to work on my intro in the GarageBand software and try to um, uh, maybe modify that a little bit. But I do have a special treat for you today. It's um, but it's as a result of, of something that happened that's sad. Um, my cousin, John Pendergrass passed away the other day at age 78. And the reason I'm uh, talking about him in this podcast is because he's been featured in the podcast before back in, I believe it was episode 180, uh, called against the odds. In fact, I'll confirm that, um, because I sent the link to my family and yes, it is episode 180 that was originally, uh, produced, July 23rd, 2013, so that was over 10 years ago. Um, John was a very special person, uh, very accomplished in his life. Uh, like, like I said, he passed um, day before yesterday, so it would have been um, halfway through the week of Veterans Day. And uh, he's a veteran himself. Uh, was combat, uh, flight combat. Um, actually, he was a flight surgeon, but he flew combat, uh, 54 combat tours uh, in Vietnam. Um. He's going to be missed, uh, but he he's an accomplished Iron Man. Um, so back in episode 180, which I'm going to have an encore presentation of here in a few minutes, uh, he gives a talk uh, to the people in our family at a family reunion down in uh, Mississippi, which is where he's from. And uh, there's just so much to say, and you always want to leave stuff out, um, but I want to dedicate this uh, this episode to his memory. And um, he wrote two books. One was called Against the Odds, and the other one is called Racing Back to Vietnam. And both of those, I will link to those books, or you can just search for them yourself, or you can search for John Pendergrass author, um, John Pendergrass Iron Man, and you'll, uh, I'll link to his obituary as well. Make a note to do that. Um, uh, that the show notes will be at ashlandave.podbean.com and my email is ashlandave at gmail.com. Um, so when I do the encore presentation, I'll just, I'll cut off the email bag section of that, uh, podcast, uh, because none of those emails apply anymore. And, um, if you do want to email me, it's at ashlandave at gmail.com, A-S-H-L-A-N-D-D-A-V-E at gmail.com. Uh, so John there's just so much to say. Um, even though he is significantly older than me, he's my first cousin, and I have a lot of first cousins that are old enough to be my parents because my mother was the youngest in her family of uh, numerous children. So I've got a lot of first cousins on my mom's side, and 
pretty much all from the South. Um, so he and my dad became close and, um, just being a few years apart and they did some, uh, events together, uh, some endurance events together, which I'll, uh, explain here in a second. Um, but John, uh, back when I was a kid, so like in the seventies, when I was, uh, you know, single, I was born in 69. So I, in the seventies, I was a you know, single digit kid, a single age, single digit aged kid. And, uh, you know, John was the, was the marathon crazy guy in the family. Um, you know, he was the, the guy that did that stuff and, um, you know, way before the internet where you could find everything out. And he did a lot of marathons and, uh, and short triathlons. Um, but then as he got older, he, uh, wanted a new challenge and his challenge was he was going to do an Ironman on six continents, uh, in his sixties. We're going to do six Ironmans on six continents in his 60s and that's what the book against the odds is about because of course odds are stacked against him on that uh, so what he does is he wrote that book and uh, I think we might have maybe one or two authors in the family I'm hoping to be an author someday um, I think I have plenty to write about my uh, police career 27 years uh, but John wrote the book got it published uh, he said he put it out to I think in the talk he says he puts it out to maybe 50 to 70 uh potential publishers and got it got picked up by a um like a random random house publisher but it was a smaller company part that's part of random house and he got it published and he gave a talk at our family reunion down in mississippi back in 2013 and that's what i'm going to uh to play here in a minute to honor him uh especially being that this is uh the week of veterans day uh I mean, I'm off from work today because of Veterans Day um, and because of the veterans. Uh, but my daughter told me that Veterans Day is actually the 11th of November, and it's observed today. And she is she is right. Um, veterans Day is actually the 11th, which is a Saturday of, of this year. Um, so I was saying that uh, John and my dad, Dennis, had done some, uh, some events. And uh, let me just briefly explain those. I don't remember what years these were. Um, but the first thing they did together was the, it's called The Way. It's the Camino de Santiago. And what it is, it's a network, or The Way of St. James in English. It's the uh, network of pilgrims, or pil pil different pilgrim routes to the Shrine of the Apostle James in northwestern Spain. And I don't know how far, there's different routes. I don't know how far they went. But it's an overnight thing where you essentially walk kind of all day, um, I guess there's people that run it, but they did these long walking endurance events. I don't know what year they did that, but um, that was a real big deal for them. Um, and a big deal for my dad. I remember him talking about it. Uh, more recently, they did the Jesus Trail, uh, which is a hiking and also a pilgrimage route in Israel, in the Galilean region. And it traces the route that Jesus might have walked that connects many sites from his life and when he was uh, performing his ministry. And that was also a really big deal because that was the first and only time my dad has been to Israel. And um, my dad and, and my mom are, are well-traveled people. They've traveled all over the world in their life, uh, but this was the first time that they had gone there. So my dad and John were, were very close. And so as a result, I was close with John as well, not only at the family reunions, but we communicated over email because of our both of our, our interest in endurance 
events. Um, and I was invited some years back, I was invited to go down and run the Mississippi Trail 50 uh, that John's local running group hosts in the DeSoto National Forest, which is, uh, I believe, south of his hometown of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And um, that was going to be a trail race. And uh, you never know if you're going to um, finish a, uh, a marathon or a 50 mile or any, or even if not trail, because I tried running in the mountains of Virginia one time and had the DNF. But wouldn't you know that um, John was given some, doing some of the announcements at the pre-race dinner. And uh, wouldn't you know that he called me out from Virginia. And uh, so the pressure was on and that was kind of his, uh, his, the way he carried himself. He's very personable, conversational tone to him all the time. Um, always asked about what you were doing and um and you know of course he'd slip in some things about himself but he was always interested in what what you were doing and so he's gonna be missed um he leaves behind three three children his wife um i believe five grandkids i think and um and quite a legacy in our family because uh he was always at the family reunions and uh even when he was he died from cancer i i neglected to mention that and uh, even when he wasn't feeling uh, good, he still got out there and, and did stuff. And we had a, when we go to the family reunion, we have a Saturday morning fun run. And he, he was always out there. Um, in a way, kind of kept that thing going uh, through some of those years. Um, so in uh, between six and eight months from now, um, he's going to be honored by our country by being um, interred at Arlington National Cemetery. So that'll be the second family member that I have there. Uh, my uncle Joe Schramm being the first, who was a Navy veteran. So a um, couple other things that I'll mention on the other side, so make sure you stick around. But here is John Pendergrass, author and Iron Man, talking about uh, his book, Against the Odds. And uh, everything he says here, if you're interested in Iron Man or triathlon, you can pick up on a few things. Um, so here, here's, uh, here's my way of honoring John. And this is the Encore presentation of episode 180 from 2013. Welcome to the Running in the Center of the Universe podcast. I'm Ashlyn Dave, and I'm recording live from my podcast studio in Ashland, Virginia. Thanks for coming along. And this is Ashlyn Dave, and this is the Running in the Center of the Universe podcast. Episode 180 is the week of... July 23rd, 2013. I'd like to thank you for coming along. If you're a new listener, I appreciate you downloading the show and checking it out. This is a uh, kind of a, uh, I guess, semi-monthly podcast on distance running, uh, endurance, uh, and events, uh, my experiences and other other people's experiences that I come across. I like to try to share in the show and uh, share, um, pass along some words of wisdom from time to time. If I ever come across any, I usually don't make up any myself. Usually I copy all that from other people, <laughs> shamelessly uh, plagiarize it. Uh, however, if you're a new listener, I do appreciate you downloading the show and coming along. And if you're a returning listener, thanks. I uh, really do appreciate it. I got some good email bag uh, stuff this week. I've also got a, uh, um, a special feature. Um, I have a first cousin who is a multiple Ironman. And this past weekend, I had a chance to... Uh, attend a inter intrafamilial book signing of a book that he wrote that I've mentioned once before on the show. It's called Against the Odds, and he uh, he spoke to. We had a big family reunion down in the uh, Mississippi Delta this past weekend, 
Uh, it's all on my mom's side. Uh, pretty pretty good sized gathering, and he was uh, he talked about his book and and what he did, uh, what prompted him to write it, and some of his experiences. And then he, you know, we all brought the books that we had bought, and he signed those. And I recorded the uh, his talk, and uh, so that's that's going to be in this week's show. I will uh, advise you that you might need to cut the volume up a little bit. I used my wife's uh, iPhone to record his talk. His name is John Pendergrass, and it didn't really work that well. It's just kind of, it was a little soft. I've tried to do some stuff to kind of normalize the volume. Next time I'll just bring my digital recorder, which does much better. Uh, however, uh, the audio clip is in the show. It's uh, about 25 minutes long. Uh, if you're not into triathlons, I think you'll still get something out of it because keep you got to keep in mind an Ironman does have a marathon in there after uh, the 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike. And uh, he doesn't just talk all about triathlon. He, it's really, he really kind of just talks about his experiences uh, being on uh, six different continents uh, uh, doing Ironmans. Uh, so that's going to be this part of the, sh- uh, the bulk of the show this week, and we'll get to that here in just in just a minute. And then I'll, after that, I'll do the email bag section of the show. And I did get some – I'm way behind on emails. Uh, so if you sent me an email and I haven't responded to you, you'll hear your resp- the response here in the uh, podcast. Um, but before I get into that, I, I do want to mention a, uh, an interesting conversation I had with a, uh, uh, my, the husband of the veterinarian that we take our dog to. Uh, his kids are on my daughter's swim team, and we had a very interesting conversation the other day about what happened, what do you do with a horse when a horse dies? And his, his wife is a, you know, all, all animals veterinarian, uh, but does do, I guess, some horse, horse work. And uh, so I asked him, I said, well, what do you do, you know, when a horse dies? He said, well, you know, you bury it. And I asked him how you do that. And he said he's had to do it three times. He has, because they have horses, and then I think he's helped out, I guess, his, his wife's practice. He goes down and uh, rents a front-end loader. Uh, where he lives, they've got some property. And he digs a uh, big-ass hole, and then he puts the horse in it. And he said there's... And then he buries it back. And it was the reason it was an interesting conversation is because I've just never really thought about what you do with the horse uh, when a horse dies because it's so big. And he said there's really no nice way to uh, put the horse in the hole. You just kind of uh, push it in. Uh, he said it, it kind of depends on who's who's watching you when you do it. And uh, he kind of said that. He also said that uh, you can have a horse cremated if you want, and the ashes will take up uh, quite a good-sized container. So I thought that was kind of an interesting conversation, and I'm not really sure why I put it in the podcast, but it was just kind of some food for thought. I remember I made a note of it in my little notebook I, I keep for when I get ideas for the show. Um, so, yeah, that was uh, that was kind of weird. Uh, so, uh, but, uh, okay, that's enough of that. So, yeah, big trip down south uh, for a big family reunion, something we try to go to. We try to go to every year. It's hard to kind of go every other year, every third year sometimes. Um, you know, shrimp boil, lots and lots of um, southern food, really good. Uh, and here's the funny thing. When we traveled down there, we spent a couple of days in New Orleans before we went. We drove over to um, where the family reunion was in Mississippi. Um, the heat was really not that bad down there. You know, it was pretty hot down in Mississippi. You know, Virginia's pretty hot too. But it was hotter up here than it was down there. We had a, a magnificent uh, few days down there. It was just not hot at all. I uh, went for a couple runs. Um, you know, can't complain. Can't complain at all. Uh, the only uh, problem was was the state park that we had the family reunion at had the lake drained. 
because they were working on the dam. And that was kind of a bummer. We knew that going down there, but next year it should be better. Um, and uh, another kind of a weird thing about the state park is they had a lot of convicts doing all the work there, and there were alligators there. So <laughs> and that was a great weekend, uh, and we got to hear John talk. So let me talk a little bit about what his book is. It's called Against the Odds, and I'm going to uh, – I'm going to kind of read what the book is about uh, from the randomhouse.com. That's who published it for him. Uh, anyway, let me just uh, let me just talk. This is what the book is about. I've talked about it once before, uh, but now I've got uh, get, we get to hear him talk about. It. He's in his 60s. His name is John Pendergrass. Uh, completing a triathlon at any age is a major achievement. Finishing an Ironman triathlon in your 60s is nothing short of inspirational. A true account of John Pendergrass's impossible goal of completing six Ironman triathlons on six continents, all while in his 60s. Against the odds will shatter your preconceptions of what a man in his golden years can accomplish. Uh, for most people, the, their 60s is a time to slow down, take things easy, and reflect on a life well-lived. Not for Pendergrass. As his 60th birthday loomed, he longed for a challenge that would push him to his limits and drive him to achieve something that few people had ever done before. Pendergrass found his answer in the Ironman triathlon, the world's most difficult endurance event, an intimidating 2.4-mile swim in open water, grueling 112-mile bike ride, exhausting 26.2-mile run, all in the same day, 140.6 miles nonstop, monumental task for men half his age. Uh, Against the Odds follows Pendergrass through each arduous step as he struggles against time, doubt, and his own physical limitations to arrive tired but victorious at the finish line. From the deserts of Arizona to the bush of South Africa, from the beaches of Brazil to the coast of New England, New Zealand, <laughs> this journey chronicles not only the races themselves, but also the breathtaking countries that host them. Told with modesty and humor against the odds is a story of impressive drive and incredible courage that will inspire you to new heights many could only dream of reaching. Now, that is a summary of the book. It's a, it's a, it's a great book. It's, uh, I don't know, a couple hundred pages long. It's got a Ford by Brent Favre. Uh, my co- John Pendergrass is my first cousin. Uh, his mother and my mother uh, are, were sisters. His mother's since passed, and he's he's a lot older than I am because my mom was the youngest of so many. And you know, he, he's been going to these family reunions for years. I always knew he was a distance runner, and and then I remember hearing, uh, and I think way back in one of the early episodes of the podcast, I talked about my uh, about him doing an Ironman in Brazil. And um, I didn't realize he had done, uh, you know, kept doing them. You know, every now and then we'd hear stories about what he'd done. Because he lives down in, Miss- in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And now uh, that's where Brett Favre is from. So he got Brett Favre to write a Ford for the book. And uh, what follows is him talking to our, a gathering of our family uh, about the book, about what a triathlon is, some of his experiences doing it. Some of the stuff is obviously basic information. But how often do you get to hear an author, you know, talk about the book that he wrote? Uh, especially, uh, you know, get to ask, and I got to ask him questions, and um, you might you might recognize my voice in, in a couple of the questions. So uh, here's John Pendergrass uh, talking about his book Against the Odds, and I'll have a link to to the book and to how to purchase it on the sh- uh, in the show notes at uh, ashlandave.podbean.com, and hopefully you uh, stick around and uh, listen to the uh, rest of the show. I'll have some more material for the podcast after um, his talk. Had more support from my family on this book than you can imagine. Uh, I tell everyone if I didn't, if it wasn't for my family, sales would be great. Day. <laughs> anyway, uh, I want to talk briefly about my book, which is called Against the Odds. And I want to tell you what a triathlon is and 
what an Ironman triathlon is, how I came to do the six Ironman triathlons on six continents, and how I, and write a book about it. And then I'll tell you real briefly how I trained for it, and uh, then just go through quickly uh, a typical trip that I would do. And uh, any time during my talk, stop me and ask me a question. We'll, of course, have questions when I get, when I get to the end, but any... Uh, this is certainly informal with your family, so be sure and interrupt me if you want to ask uh, something. And if you have to get up and leave, get up and leave. <laughs> anyway, uh, a triathlon is an event where you swim, bike, and run in that order. And the clock starts when you begin the swim. It continues as you go through the first tra uh, transition zone onto the bike, continues through the bike through the second transition zone and then out to the run, and it finishes when you get to the end of the run. Uh, triathlon is a relatively new sport. The first one was started in uh, 1974, so the event hadn't been along, hadn't been around that long. But it's uh, gotten very popular. There's something like uh, a half a million people in the uh, United States each year that do a triathlon. Now, uh, most triathlons are relatively short, but the Ironman triathlon, which I wrote my book about, is the longest triathlon. It's a 2.4-mile swim and then a 112-mile bike and then a 26.2-mile run. Uh, they typically start at 7 in the morning, and you have to midnight, uh, 17 hours later, to finish. Uh, the people who win them, the, uh, the professional athletes, would usually finish it in something like eight hours to nine hours or so. And most of mine, I, I did it around 14 hours or 15 hours to give you an idea of the uh, time involved. While there are thousands of regular triathlons uh, around, there are only approximately 30 Ironman triathlons in the whole world. And each one is limited to something like 2,500 uh, people, approximately. So there are not a lot of opportunities to do an Ironman triathlon. And most of the uh, triathlon, Ironman triathlons sell out immediately. They will typically open the registration for the following year, the day after the race, and literally in a matter of minutes or hours, it's filled up for the following year in most cases. Uh, most of my life, I've been a runner, but when I got into my late 50s, I started doing triathlons. Uh, my running was getting slower and slower, and I decided I'd be also maybe cross-train, so I uh, got a bike. I did a little more biking and swimming, gradually got into them. And like uh, most things, it's time progression. You want to see if you could do something that's a little bit more uh, difficult, a little bit more challenging. So that was sort of the impetus for me to do my first Ironman triathlon. And I did my first one the year that I turned 60. Uh, as I mentioned, the one, there are about 10 in the United States, and they're all very popular. And I didn't want to commit a full year in advance to doing an Ironman triathlon. Quite honestly, I wasn't sure if I could do it. Uh, I didn't want it hanging over my head for a full year. I know a lot of people that uh, will sign up and they'll spend the whole year planning, training, and I just didn't want to go through that. That was too much of a burden to have to worry about it for a full year. 
So the first one that I did uh, uh, worked out very well for me uh, convenience-wise. It was the Ironman Brazil. Uh, it was at a good time of year. It didn't fill up uh, immediately like the uh, American ones did, and I was able to register for it uh, three months ahead of time. So I went and did that, and I, it worked out pretty well. I had a wonderful trip. Uh, uh, the race was held in a part of Brazil called Florianopolis, which is a... Uh, Resort area in the southern part of the continent. You know, and it, thank you. Yeah. And is uh, it, it like the it, like the Morton? No, it's uh, that part of the world is really uh, more European than it is Latin American and southern Brazil. I guess it's much like Argentina. It's a uh, area that has a really a European flavor. So I did the race and was successful there and went to Rio de Janeiro for a, a week or two and traveled around and had a wonderful time. Incidentally, most of the time when I'd go on these trips, I would go and do the race and then I'd go for another two or three weeks to visit the country that I was there. I sort of worked it all into a nice uh, vacation trip. The following year, uh, I, I had been watching the cycling on television a lot. This was toward the end of the time when Lance Armstrong did all of the tours to France, and I decided I wanted to try uh, a, a race that had a lot of mountains or climbing in it, so I uh, went to the Ironman Switzerland and, and did that, and uh, it had a lot of mountains and climbing, <laughs> and I, I got enough mountains to last me a lifetime. And going up the mountains isn't so hard as coming down them, it's really the uh, frightening thing because when you go down these mountains, uh, you'll, you know, you'll go 45 or 50 miles an hour, and you're just sitting on top of this bike holding on and hoping that you don't hit a bump or have a flat tire or something like that. Well, uh, about a month after I got back from the Ironman uh, Switzerland, Hurricane Katrina came. And, and I talk about that in the book. That sort of slowed things down for two or three months. And then uh, uh, maybe three months after the race, I had a bike accident and I fell and uh, broke my hip and I broke my elbow and I had to have a couple of surgeries for that. So that set me back, as you can imagine, a while. And um, maybe a year or so later, I was finally getting back up to snuff and I was thinking about doing another Ironman triathlon. And I was hoping to uh, go to New Zealand. When I was in the service, I had some good friends from New Zealand, and it's a country that I'd always uh, wanted to visit. Well, about that time, I had one of these bold strokes of good luck that you have maybe once in your life. Uh, I had entered a contest online run by a uh, travel company that takes people overseas to Ironman races, and I'd registered, and it uh, Lo and behold, they picked my name out, and I won a free trip uh, to the Ironman South Africa. So uh, that was a, a fortunate thing, and I went there. Patricia, incidentally, went with me on that trip. And I came back the next year and went to New Zealand. Uh, a few, maybe a, a year or so after that, uh, a couple of my friends at home wanted to uh, do an Ironman triathlon, so the three of us decided to uh, 
through the Ironman Arizona, which is out in Tempe, Arizona. And uh, so we did that, and along about that time, I was speaking to a, a, a friend of mine in the office, and she was telling me she's done a lot of marathons in different countries, and she was telling me uh, that about all she had done. Of course, I was telling her what I had done. And she told uh, she said, well, you've done an Ironman on five continents. Uh, you ought to try to do one on six continents. And I'd never really, I hadn't counted the continents. I really wasn't aware of that. So uh, I had only one continent left, uh, and that was Asia. Well, there was only one triathlon or one Ironman in Asia, and that was the Ironman China. So I got on the uh, internet and started looking up the details of it, and it's held in a, 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 an area called Hainan, a province called Hainan. And Hainan is an island about 60 miles long in the South China Sea, just maybe a hundred, it was like 120 miles from where I was stationed in Vietnam when I was in Vietnam at Da Nang Air Base. And I remember that when I was at Da Nang Air Base, I was a flight surgeon and I flew uh, 54 combat missions in the back seat of an F-4. And one of the things I had to do was to look out for Hainan because whenever we would go that way, sometimes uh, they had a MIG base, uh, red Chinese MIGs that we had to watch. And some of you may not remember, uh, old enough may not remember, Red China back then was a different country than it is today. It was much the same as uh, North Korea is today, a closed, barbaric, militaristic society. And we weren't at war with them, but we certainly, uh, uh, they were big allies of the North Vietnamese. So, uh, I thought this, you know, it sounded like a good story, six Ironman triathlons on six continents in the 60s, and I told some people about it, and uh, several people agreed this is a pretty good story, you know, and uh, gave me some positive feedback, but nothing came of it to speak of, and I sort of forgot about it. And then one day I was in my local library, and I picked up a book, as I usually do, I'll go to the new book section, uh, and the book's called Halfway to Heaven, and it was written by a writer in uh, Colorado, and uh, he told the story of how he was in his 40s, out of shape, and his son got him uh, to start climbing 14ers in Colorado. 14er is a 14,000-foot mountain, and there's something like 54 of them in the state of Colorado. And uh, so the book was basically about him doing climbing 54 uh, 14ers in one year. But the thing about the book, it was to it told in an informative, sort of de self-deprecating, humorous way. And as soon as I read it, uh, I knew, I uh, told myself I could write a book like that because uh, uh, my story I felt was equally as good. And before I'd read that book, I'd never once thought about writing the book. But uh, once... Uh, I read it, I, the idea was implanted in my head, and I started working on it the following summer. And it was, uh, you know, it, it, the story was, the, the outline of it is fairly simple. You tell what a triathlon is, how you train for it, and then you tell about your six trips. You know, it lays itself out real logically. And uh, since I'd done it, it was pretty easy to write. You know, it didn't take me a real long time to write it. I wrote most of it. Uh, one summer, but 
it's probably like all writers, I continuously was trying to improve it and uh, make it better, uh, uh, make it more uh, readable and so on and so forth. And what I did during that period of time, I read an awful lot. And I, whenever I would read somebody, somebody who could say something in a particular good way, I'd sort of adapt it, you know, and modify it and change up my book a little bit. And I started sending out uh, my proposals to different publishers. You know, for a nonfiction book, uh, uh, the way you get it published, so to speak, or hopefully get it published, is you send a proposal to publishers and agents. And what a proposal consists of basically is an outline of the book, a few sample chapters, a market analysis of you know other people who've written books like yours, uh, your credentials, and that type of thing. And uh, I probably sent it out, I don't know, somewhere between 50 or 75 people before. Fortunately, I got someone uh, who uh, agreed to publish it. Uh, let me tell you briefly what I do, because uh, I get this question a lot. What kind of training did I do to prepare for it? I would go on a 12-week lead-up to it, and I'd start at 12 weeks, and I'd build up to maybe three to four weeks out, I was doing the most that uh, I would ever do. And then the last two or three weeks, I'd taper off. And, and on my heavy weeks, I'd do maybe uh, swim three times a week, uh, with one real long swim. I'd try to get a, a 4,200-yard swim, which is out the length of the Ironman swim. And then I'd uh, ride my bike two or three times a week with maybe one real long bike ride of over 100 miles. I'd usually do that on a Saturday. And then uh, I'd run, you know, three, maybe three times a week with one long run that I do on Sundays. And I eventually got that up to close to 20 miles. And uh, then, you know, uh, hopefully uh, once you've done that, you ease, ease back the last couple of weeks and you're well rested and, and hope, hopefully things work out for you. Most of the trips that I made, you know, these are places that are a long ways away. Uh, uh, usually from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed at your destination, from the time you wake up in Hattiesburg to the time you go to your uh, bed in your destination is probably 48 hours or so. Just to give you an idea, to go from New York to Johannesburg is 18 hours, you know, and that's just... And China's far, New Zealand's far, you know. Uh, Brazil and Switzerland aren't too far, but uh, uh, they're all long trips. And one of the uh, difficult things is you have to travel with your bicycle. You know, your bicycle is by far and away your most important piece of equipment, and it has to work. Uh, uh, you know, for you to be successful, you have to have a good bicycle, and you have to get it there. And uh, it's awkward uh, carrying it around. I always tell people that it's like going on a vacation and taking your lawnmower on vacation. You know, uh, it's something that's big and cumbersome. The airlines invariably will bang it up or they'll lose it or uh, they, you know, it doesn't come out with the rest of the luggage. It's just stuck in some far corner of the airport and you have to go find it and then you have to get it and rush it through customs and get it to your connecting flight. Uh, but it's just one of those things you have to do in order to uh, do the Ironman in, in a foreign country. Uh, 
the, uh, the Ironman Triathlon is really the whole thing is more like a three or four day journey at the minimum. Uh, you, you don't just show up that morning and uh, do the race. Uh, there's several things involved before then. Uh, of course, you register, you get your bike out, make sure it works, you check out the swim course, make sure you're oriented there. Uh, you uh, sometimes go on the tour of the course, you know, go in a bus or a van or something just to ride around and see what the course uh, looks like. And that can be very intimidating because, uh, you know, these are long courses. The 112-mile bike may be a couple of loops or three loops, but still you have to, you know, it takes you several hours just to drive the course and you're, you're tired, your seat hurts, your legs are stiff and you, all you've done is to sit in a car and you wonder what it's going to be like when you actually have to do it uh, in person. A couple of days before you usually have a, a welcoming dinner that's quite nice and wherever you're going they usually feature the local talent, you know, uh, Brazil or New Zealand or China and all, this, all of these countries are proud of their culture and are, are anxious to show it off. Eventually, the uh, race morning comes, and uh, usually I'm up like 4.30 or so, eat breakfast, go out, check my bike again. And then finally, things get underway at 7 o'clock. And it's roughly, you know, a couple of thousand people that start at one time, all in the same body of water, uh, trying to swim the 2.4 miles. And you swim, uh, it's either in a lake or sometimes in the ocean or in a river, uh, and you follow buoys and you do the 2.4-mile swim, and then you're off, uh, change clothes, and out on with your bicycle. And it takes me, that distance takes me like six and a half to seven hours on a bicycle, and that's a long time. The first three or four hours usually aren't that bad. Every uh, 10 miles or so, there's an aid station, and you... You know, you exchange bottles of, uh, uh, to drink and you get bananas or whatever and you try to eat and keep yourself well hydrated and uh, get as many calories down as possible. And usually, you know, I'll get to 80 miles or so and then it it's just really gets to be a chore. And you'll sit down and you say, well, I'm at 80 miles and uh, I'm going to really stay concentrated and get through this and you'll bike and bike and bike and you think I must be at 90 miles and you look at your odometer and it says 81. You know? <laughs> it, it, it's, you're at that spot where it, the time just passes slowly. But eventually you get to the end and then you're out. You know, it's hard uh, when, you, when you've when you been on the bike that long, especially most of it in what's called the arrow position. Uh, it's hard to sometimes sit up straight and run good. You've seen people on TV ride their bikes down like this. Uh, in what's called arrow bars, and there's a logic to that. When you're riding a bike like that, you can go faster and you're out of the wind, there's less resistance, and it's really more comfortable to ride a bike once you get used to it down in sort of a crouched position than it is to sit upright like that. And for me, the, the run is by far and away the most difficult part of the event, and I usually manage two or three miles, and then it just turns into a question of surviving, you know, of getting uh, run, walk, run, walk, run, walk till you get to the end. And this is really hard because by that time, your body's at, at the spot where you, you don't have any appetite. You can't take any 
kind of food or calories you you know maybe stay hydrated, but uh, you, it's just like running for five six hours on an empty tank, you know, because you don't have you're out of energy, you're tired, and uh, but you just have to keep moving along as best you can. But eventually, and hopefully, uh, you come to the end, and usually by that time, it's like, uh, you know, 9 o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night, and I'll uh, get my stuff, gather it back together, go back to the hotel, make a few phone calls, and uh, usually I'm so tired that I still don't have an appetite by then. Uh, I can maybe, uh, you know, drink a half a beer or eat a few potato chips, but I'm, not, I'm just so tired that I cannot eat good, and I, I, and I don't sleep good that first night either. And then around 7 in the morning, it never fails. Your appetite just returns with a vengeance, and you're just famished. Yeah. And I usually go down to the breakfast buffet and eat and eat and eat. And sometimes I'll come back, and I'll uh, you know, clean my bike and pack it and go back and eat and eat again. And for, and for several days, you, you, you really are almost famished. You know, it's amazing how it works. Uh, yeah, where where I went and what I saw and so forth, I put you know that's in the book. That's uh, I could talk about that forever, but I'll stop now. And, uh, I have a question: Just how does the Ironman race handle the, the language differences, and how was the language barrier a challenge for you on uh -huh. most of the courses? Uh, usually, uh, they'll have it per, they'll have it in the native tongue and also in English. It's always in English. English, English is the language everywhere. I mean, even places like China, even places that I've been to that aren't Ironman, English is the second language, and, and, and you can somehow get by. And then most of the time, uh, that part of it, I had a travel agency, the one who sort of handles it, and they've got people, the local people that uh, work with you, and, and they know what the problems are. So that works out okay. But sometimes, like I can remember in South Africa, uh, uh, running with some of the uh, people there, and they were all talking in Afrikaans, you know, which is a Dutch spinoff, and uh, uh, I couldn't understand the thing that they said. Was okay. there one particular Ironman that was more challenging with the physical? Well, the one that I, I, yeah. uh, the one that I did not finish was the last one uh, in China, and that was one of those freaks of nature where it, uh, it, when I first got over there, it was like in the high 50s, but uh, by race day, it was up over 100 degrees, and it was like real strong winds, and uh, I sort of knew I was done before. You know, I don't do good at heat, and it was so hot for that length of time. So that the you know the the weather the weather and the hills are the thing. I just got dehydrated. I can't stay hydrated for hour after hour. Even though I you know stop and drink and drink and drink and drink and drink. You know, uh, I you know I don't mind hills too much, but I hate the heat. You know. I'd get Brett Favre to do the forward. <laughs> his uh, uh, wife, I know his wife a little bit. She's a traffic, but really it's a mutual friend got him to do it. Yeah, yeah. He lives in Hattiesburg, though, right? He lives in Hattiesburg, right. right. Uh, John, you mentioned training, swim, bike, uh, run. In the training, did you ever put all three together? I put the bike and run. Not, I never did the swim. You know, transitioning from a swim to bike is always easy. There's no problem. Yeah. 
but uh, going from a bike to a run uh, uh, is, is difficult because you get off and your legs just feel horrible and it takes a while to go and, and uh, that's called a brick when you practice that, go from bike and run. But uh, uh, so I practice that. Yeah, that's important uh, to get off a bike and run a little bit. I, I'd practice that fairly regularly. And the other part, the swim, uh, you know, you, you swim the bike is usually no problem. How does swimming the Hellas Pond compare to well, it was a lot harder because it was re it was the water was so rough that uh, they would have canceled. You know, uh, but the in Turkey uh, that's a swim, not an Ironman swim, but another swim I did in Turkey, and it was uh, uh, so it was a lot harder because it's rough. Yeah. John, can you talk about just how you do the transition? Do you try to? Do you take your time, or do you really try to get that nailed down so you do it quickly? You know, I'll be honest. I try to do it uh, fairly quick because I, you know, I'm. You never know when you'll need the time, especially somebody like me. Uh, so I do it reasonably quick, uh, but I'm not like the people you see on TV. Some people, the, the professionals and the really good ones, actually have their shoes clipped into their bike and they run. I mean, I don't do that, but I try to be fairly expedient. Yeah. What's the next challenge for you? I don't know. You know, I, I don't really have any coming up. I know some of y'all know I, I hurt my knee about a month ago. I had my quadriceps tendon torn. I had that uh, fixed. It's been five weeks, and so I'm hoping it'll get well. I can do a little biking and swimming, but not much else now. You know, As, uh, anybody in here in our age range knows it gets older, you get the harder it gets. You know, it really does. Now, incidentally, I've, I brought plenty of these books. If anybody uh, wants one, they're fifteen dollars, and, uh, and and those of you, I know a lot of you bought them, and I'm most appreciative. I can't emphasize that enough. Are there many women who enter Ironman? They're about, uh, I'd say, roughly uh, thirty percent. So yeah, there are a lot of, it, 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 yeah, it's, uh, women do a pretty pretty good uh, representation. Uh -huh. A couple times you mentioned when you got to a country you got sick, or at least once you mentioned. Uh, yeah, that was in China. I got sick, uh, uh, and you know I, I got sick and had vomiting and diarrhea for a day or two before, and sort of got well. And uh, uh, I really try to avoid that. You know, I, I don't. The, the first, yeah, I don't eat things the day or two before, like fruits and. Bet unwashed, uncooked. I don't eat uncooked things for the, the right before those two or three days to hopefully avoid that. And you know, I drink bottled water if there's any question at all in the water. You know. Do they do the uh, Iron Man tattoos on site for people that finish? <laughs> A lot of people have those, you know. Uh, Did you get one? No, I didn't. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, one interesting thing about writing a book, you write all this, and then the, you get the attitude, you know, they cut a lot of it out. So uh, I wrote a lot about tattoos, but they sort of cut a lot out. <laughs> I wrote, incidentally, this is probably about 70,000 words, and I probably wrote like a hundred, a little over 100,000 and it was easy to write. I mean, you know, it's just like, oh, y'all say you wrote uh, uh, my trip to England. You know, you say, I saw X, I saw Y, I saw Z. You know, it, 
wasn't anything creative about it. But this part of the book to me was just like you'd be sitting right there at a reunion and telling the story like uh -huh. you're telling it now. Uh -huh. And that was to me the best part. Of well, you know, uh, I, I sort of it sort of went that way early on for this reason. Uh, I, and I think my publisher might have had a slightly different idea. They kept, I kept, they kept trying, and I kept fighting. They wanted to what I call hero it up, and I didn't want them to hero it up, you know, because there are, you know, there are a lot of people that do that faster, and I didn't. Uh, so I think they were expecting maybe more of a heroic book than, and uh, and then once you start writing it one way, you sort of that way, you know. And that's where I got the idea, like the guy whose book I read. His was that way. I mean, it would, uh, uh, you know, he t he gave a lot of information, and he did it in a humorous fashion. He didn't take himself too seriously. And, uh, yeah. and did you, uh, I know you mentioned that you had friends that went with you to Arizona, only so. Yeah, did you uh, with, yeah. Uh, you family members, sometimes by myself, uh, yeah. And, Polly went to, uh, uh, with me, and then Patricia, and uh, uh, some I went with friends, some I went uh, with the travel group. You know. Has there been any medical studies done on the participants when you get through? Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not sure, you know. Because it's the strain on the body. Yeah, yeah, and you know, that's a good question. I always tell people it, it's not the, the optimal, healthy way to do it, to do exercise, you know. It's obviously an overkill as far as getting fit, you know. It's just like David does, it runs 100 kilometers. I mean, that's uh, uh, not, uh, you know, if you're designing how am I going to be most healthy, that wouldn't be what you do, you know. But, well, how much rest, I mean, how, before you went and toured the country after a race? You know, surprisingly, the next day uh, you feel better, you, you're stiff and sore, but I mean, within a day or so, you feel fine. Really? Yeah. Of course, you, you probably wouldn't be able to go out and run real good or exercise, but as far as just feeling, you feel good. I, so I usually spend the day after the race still where I, at the race site, and then I go on my tour. Anybody else? Well, those are all good questions. I thank y'all. Uh, I, I really do. Uh, yeah, did you do any formal uh, training or anything like that before you went out there? Did you do any formal training or swimming as far as technique of swimming? You know, uh, that, uh, I, when I started triathlons, I'm like all of us, we probably swam, and we, but I never... You at the lake. Yeah, yeah, y'all yeah. yeah, watch my video. So, but I never was on a swim team or coach. So I, I swam, and I and I got some people to tell me, and then once I got a girl that sort of helped me a little bit, and that's the kind of thing. The good thing about this, a good thing about triathlon, a good thing about running, is you get out of it. You know, you can help yourself by doing it. You know, you get out of it what you put into. It. And so, if you don't know how to swim, and you practice, and you swim, you get you know you can become a better uh, swimmer. But uh, I, along the way, I had different people help me. Once uh, for uh, before one of them, I had uh, I actually hired somebody to help me once a week. You know, a young lady who was a swim coach, and she you know make different stuff. 
But then, you know, you swim and swim and swim and swim pretty soon, it's easy, a lot easier. And same thing with riding a bike. You know, once you get the mileage in, every, uh, everything gets easier. You know. And then you put it all together. Yeah. What kind of supplies did you take with you? I mean, you talked about gels, and I don't know what all hunters... Well, but you take... you trouble getting them into certain countries? Uh, no, uh, you can't take those little cartridges to blow up your tires. You know, when you have a flat tire, you have a little uh, CO2 carton. You can't carry them on the airplane, so you have to get them over there. Uh, when you have a flat... You know, when you have a flat tire, you have to change your own flat. But fortunately, I've never had a flat tire in an Ironman base. I've had a bunch in other races and had them in training. Uh, but uh, I would care, you know, uh, I would, a lot of times I take cookies, you know, like things like Fig Newtons and chocolate chip cookies, and I always carry gels. And then on the bike, uh, you stop, and they had, uh, you don't stop, you slow down and you get a fresh bottle of uh, sports drink or water, pick a banana or whatever. They have all kinds of stuff. And, and, and you can do that on a bike. When you get on a run, as I mentioned, I'm so, your body shuts down and you, you can't eat, you know, even though you, you just, you know, you can't do it. You know. So that that's what I, I carry, you know, jails to answer your question, jails and cookies or sometimes you get power bars. Or I think a, a lot of times, uh, Things like Fig Newtons are just, or something like that, are just as good as a power bar. You know, they're about the same stuff. I think, I think those kind of sports bars are a marketing uh, thing. You know. I think you should write another book. Well, I, I'd probably have to do some more things. <laughs> No, that's all been, you know, my publishers is relatively small publisher. It's part of Random House, which is a big publisher, but uh, uh, they, they, as far as marketing, they've done essentially nothing for me. It's all, so I've arranged the signings and things, you know. Yeah. Have you enjoyed that experience? Yeah, it is, you know, because I, I, I see people that I, in many cases, turn up that I hadn't seen in a long time, like people I knew in college or... Uh, so I can Clarksdale somebody uh, I knew that I actually rode rode to school with in the third grade you know, ah. that I had seen you know things like that. So there have been quite a few encounters like that, and I've really enjoyed them. And you know you enjoy it when people are interested in what you, in your right. You know it's the compliment, and uh, you always enjoy it and appreciate it. You know. Well, I thank all you, Patricia. Can you help me with the books if yeah. anybody wants them? I know some of y'all have them. Some of y'all have them. Let me to China, and I know I own Aunt Frankie one from Clarkstown. You sit right there? Yeah, I'll sit up here. That's all right. So, yeah, that was the talk. And uh, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you might even remember that one back from 2013. I was so glad that uh, John allowed us to record that um, back then, and it's so valuable now. It really is now that he's 
he's passed. So, um, yeah, I just uh, he was like that, um, you know, that family member that the distant family member that you just really get to know really well. And and so when you when you have those visits, those family reunions, you kind of tend to spend a lot of time talking with that person and then, you know, follow up with other communication. And, um, I remember, in fact, I've still got the emails from him. It's just kind of a weird, weird feeling to, to know that he's gone. Um, we got the news yesterday. So, uh, his two books are against the odds and racing back to Vietnam. And, um, it's been a while since I read them. I started re- reading the, the Against the Odds one again after I, I pulled them off the shelf. And um, if you have any interest in endurance events um, and hearing a, a, just a regular middle-of-the-pack person, really, that, that did some extraordinary things uh, with distance, with endurance, um, I recommend reading the books. Um, as you could hear him, he's uh, a true Southerner, a Southern gentleman, uh, grew up in Clarksdale, Mississippi, which is about 80 miles uh, directly south of Memphis, which is the Mississippi Delta. Um, anyway, I just always liked him. I guess I've said that plenty. Uh, but the the reason he went back to Vietnam was because um, he didn't, and this is, I think, my understanding, he didn't finish the, and I don't want to spoil the story, but he, he was a DNF in one of the Ironman, so he had to go back and get that sixth continent. And um, so that's what, that's what that is. I don't want to spoil the story, but um, check that out. All righty, uh, a couple other things here um, before I move on to uh, the end of the show. <laughs> um, episode 300 is coming up, so make sure you check in on the listener roll call. I've already gotten several from folks. Um, I'm getting about 160 downloads uh, per episode now. That's way down from like 900 plus from back in the day. I was looking at uh, episode 180. That was from 2013, and that had over 900 downloads. That was the episode that um, I just uh, played. Um, so make sure you get your name in, uh, where you hail from, what kind of running you do. I don't use that. I don't market you. I don't send the email, your email address to anybody, knowing that you're a listener to podcasts. So you can get marketed for stuff. I just uh, log it, and uh, episode 300, I'll do a listener roll call and uh, to honor everybody that uh, listens to the show. And it's... Uh, in case you never heard your name called out on a podcast, it's kind of cool. It's kind of cool when you're when you're uh, when you're expecting it. So make sure you do that at ashlandave at gmail uh, Where are you hail from? What kind of listen? What kind of running that you do? And um, if you keep it uh, relatively brief, uh, that way I can uh, kind of mention it a little bit when I go through the listener roll call. Uh, another thing that I'm very uh, proud of was I recently celebrated my 28th wedding anniversary to my beautiful wife Monica. And, um, that was pretty cool. We went to, uh, I've mentioned this before. I really love bluegrass music. That's my favorite type of music. I like jazz a lot too. Um, but bluegrass is, is what I like to listen to. And that's, I like to have it on almost all day long. I can listen to it. And, uh, you know, some people do say, well, doesn't that all those songs kind of all sound the same? Like, yeah, they do. <laughs> and I like that. Uh, but anyway, we went and saw the steel drivers up at the Birchmere music hall in Alexandria, Virginia. It was an awesome show. Um, if you've ever heard of, if you've never heard of the Steel Drivers, maybe you've heard of Chris Stapleton. He used to be their lead uh, lead singer, um, but they've moved through a couple other lead singers now. But they they sound great. Uh, we'd seen them once before at a theater in Hopewell called the Beacon Theater in Hopewell, Virginia, 
And that was the first time I'd ever seen them. And uh, that's when I learned that uh, fans of the steel drivers are called steelheads. So I guess I'm kind of a steelhead. My wife and I are kind of steelheads. We did, we went and saw them a second time. Um, but the best part about the whole weekend was the convenience of taking the train from downtown Ashland to Alexandria. And we walked everywhere the whole weekend. We did, oh, we took Ubers, but uh, we, um, we didn't have our own car. And we could walk to the train station here in down in Ashland because we lived just not even half a mile with, by sidewalks walking up there. So we dragged our suitcase up there. Um, and Amtrak is just so comfortable and easy. It really is. Um, I, I just, it's just so easy. That's it's, it's uh, the chairs are plenty, a lot bigger than plain chairs, and uh, it was just very nice. Um, and then another thing I want to mention is that uh, the James Madison uh, Football Dukes are one of the few last undefeated teams in the country. I'm not jinxing it because plenty of people have already said that. Uh, they're playing UConn this coming weekend. Hopefully, they will go to ten and zero. And uh, I'm a proud uh, alumnus of James Madison University, so I just had to bring that up and brag a little bit. Um, it's kind of cool because Jane, uh, the, the team has moved up to the FBS and they're doing really well. All right. Um, I do have one email that I followed up from, uh, from Tim and Tim was uh, going to do the 50 K the Marine Corps marathon. Uh, he dropped down to the marathon instead of 50 Ks. He didn't have the fitness. He dropped down to the marathon and he did finish. So Tim, congratulations. And, uh, that's awesome. Also heard from Sandy and, um, Looked like she she got sick, wasn't able to do a half marathon, and they are heading to Georgia for a, a nephew's wedding. So I hope you had safe travels, Sandy. Uh, good to hear from y'all. Uh, just keep in mind, I do like to interact with listeners. Sometimes it takes me a week to get to your email because I really like to have the when I have time to sit down and really have some thoughts to respond, as opposed to just like you know, thanks for the email. You know, best regards, Dave. You know, I'd like to I like to communicate a little bit. So sometimes it takes me a little bit to get back to you. That's at ashlanddave at gmail.com. Don't forget about the listener roll call. I did that at episode 100. I did it at episode 200. And uh, 300th episode is quite quite a legacy. Um, well, not really a legacy. Quite a 300 episodes for an amateur uh, podcast is not bad, especially when I started it in 2008. Um, or was it 2012? It was 2008 because I was at 180 episodes by 2013. Um, so I've been doing it for quite some time, and um, this is gonna be a cool, uh, cool thing for my family to have. Uh, once I'm gone, they can listen to basically what I did every month with running and in my life. All right, that's it, y'all. Have a good week. I appreciate you listening to the show. This is Ashlyn Dave reminding you to run to the finish. Keep on running. Don't forget to hug your kids, and have a great week. Mm-hmm.